If you're joining us online, it's uh, great to be with you in this way as well. Uh, we're, we're beginning a new series. We just uh, met Bob, and we'll be uh, following Bob's journey for the next little bit. And um, I want to begin our time this way. There's a lot that I want to get to, so I'm going to dive right in. And I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, if I were to ask each one of you, if I was going to take a poll and ask each one of you the same question, in your opinion, what is the biggest challenge in our world today? I'm willing to bet the majority of you, your answer, it's going to be some version of this idea of division, of how divisive our world is, how divisive the conversations have become on the, in the public forum, in the social media forum. Uh, at the world at large, we have countries that are still at war with each other. In, in our own nation, we find the divisive language happening almost daily, our nation splitting because of this issue or this stance or, or whatever the, the challenge is. But what if I were to tell you that, that that's all that is, is the symptom. That's just the surface level issue, that the real issue, the heart of the issue is, is, is much deeper than that. And it's a lot closer to each one of us, that really the heart of the issue is, is not the division itself, but how we respond, how we react when faced with a high pressure situation or a divisive situation or when things don't go the way that we think that they ought to go. What does a what is it what is it what does a child do when they don't get what they want? What do they do? I mean, that's, that's, that's kids, right? That's just, that's what kids do. Adults, we, we don't do that, do we? We don't throw tantrums. Okay, okay, all right. Maybe some adults, but not you. You would never lose your temper, right? Unless maybe you, you hit a bad golf swing. Anybody, anybody ever do this? I'll let you know there's a reason why this video is muted. He loses his cool in a number of ways. Uh, okay, maybe you're not a golfer, but, but how do you handle yourself when uh, your technology just doesn't cooperate the way that you want it to? And it seems to take on a life force of its own with the sole purpose of doing the opposite of what you want it to do. Can anybody relate? Or how about this? How about this? Because this is one of my struggles to keep cool. If somebody is cruising at about 60 miles an hour in the passing lane on the interstate, how good are you then at keeping your cool? See, whether we admit it or not, we all have these areas in our lives where we struggle to keep our cool. And it's, it's usually surrounded by a, a, a divisive situation. But here's, here's the reality. This idea of division, this idea of, of being divisive, it's nothing new. Since there were more than one person on this earth, division has been an, an issue. It's been something that we've had to deal with. But how we, how we respond, how we react when we're faced with these divisive moments, that's going to say a lot about who we are, how we are able to lead ourselves in these moments. And for most of us, it's going to say a lot about the church as a whole. And, and believe it or not, some of the biggest conflicts in the world over, over the, uh, all of history could be reduced down to something as simple as two people 
who couldn't keep their cool in the face of a divisive situation. Like these two guys, consider these two men. In 49 BC, the Republic of Rome rested in the balance of these two men, Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar. Both of them at this point are Roman uh, war generals. Both effective leaders at leading men in, in, in battle on the battlefield. And on the surface, they, they appeared to be good friends. But on a deeper level, there was an issue brewing because they couldn't handle the pressure, because they couldn't manage their emotions, because they couldn't lead themselves in this high-pressure situation, it starts to blow up. Caesar, in 49 BC, he finds himself at a crossroads as he approaches the bank of the Rubicon River. And so as he's sitting on this bank, he looks on the other side and he's got a choice to make. On the other side of the river, he looks towards Rome and he sees, he knows that Pompey is there. He can stay right where he is in Gaul with his army, continuing to fight for Rome and extend their territory. Or he can cross the Rubicon with his army headed to Rome, sparking a war. But he knows that as soon as he crosses the river, he becomes a war criminal. On the other side of the river is Pompey. He's in Rome. And he's got a choice to make. He can reach out to Caesar and reassure him, say, hey, I'm not your enemy. We want the same thing. Let's not lose our heads. Let's stay cool. Let's stay united for the, for the betterment of Rome. Or he can stay put, allowing the paranoia in Caesar to just increase. And on that fateful day, Pompey stays in Rome, preparing for a fight with Caesar and Caesar crosses the Rubicon with his army and brings the fight to Pompey in Rome, immediately sparking a civil war, crushing the Republic and ushering, ushering in the time of the empire of Rome that would create a lot of the chaos and the havoc that we read about when we open up the gospel. What you need to know is a lot of the world that, and a lot of the chaos and the evil that Jesus dealt with in the gospel was sparked in this moment right here because two people couldn't keep their cool when the pressure got high. What about you? How do, how do, you, how do you handle yourself in these divisive moments, in these moments of high pressure? When, when life squeezes you, what is it that comes out? See, this is what I noticed with all of us is that we all tend to be highly effective, really good leaders, experts even, in other people's problems and other people's issues. Like we have some of the best advice for other people. We'll read headlines and say, you know, it's really, it's not that, not that complicated. All they should do is this. All they ought to do is this. We, we know exactly what to do. We are experts, at least in our own minds, when it comes to leading others in their problems. The challenge is when it's our problem, when it's internal. When our emotions are invested into the conflict, that's when the pressure gets high and that's when sometimes we struggle to keep our cool. So for the next few weeks, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend the next few weeks in the book of Judges and, and try to get a picture of, you know, what, what does the Bible have to say about self-leadership? What does good self-leadership look like? And what, maybe what, what does it not look like? That's what we're gonna do. Uh, but before we go any further, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that, that whether we listen or not, that you don't stop leading us. 
Before we step into a moment, you are already there. And you already know where you want us to go. So, Father, in this, in this moment, in this season of conflict, in this season of division, we lean into your spirit of unity to continue to bring us together, to unite us with a common need of your mercy and your grace. And let us use that as our starting point in our conversations. Lead us well today and give us the strength to follow. In your son's name, amen. In your Bibles, I want you to open up to Judges 14. And as you do that, this is something I want everybody to know here. And that's this, every one of us is a leader one way or another, even if you see yourself primarily as a follower, because you, you choose for yourself who you're gonna follow. And so in that moment, you have to lead yourself. And if you're a part of the church, you better believe you're, you're a leader. You wanna get used to that reality. I want you to think about it in these terms. If, think about in the most difficult moments of your life or the, in, in the presence of a divisive issue, if somebody else was gonna make a decision, make a choice about whether or not to follow Jesus and the only thing they had to go on was how they saw you handle yourself in this moment of division, what would they say? How would they respond? This is why we are all leaders. And so for the next month, I want you to wrestle with this idea and your notes number one, the way I lead myself in high pressure situations or in divisive situations, it's gonna determine if I lead others closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus. Now today in, in, in Judges uh, 14, we're gonna look at Samson. So Samson was a judge for the Hebrew people at the time. And what that meant was he, was, he served as a local leader that emerged at a specific time with a specific need of the people to, to free the people, the Israelites from some form of oppression. So this is after Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. This is after Joshua has led them into the promised land, but we're not quite yet to the time of King David and this united monarchy. So right now, all of the 12 tribes are kind of disjointed, sort of doing their own thing. And in chapter 14, one of these tribes, the tribe of Dan, is, is being oppressed by the Philistines. Okay, so the Philistines are the bad guys in this story. And out of this conflict emerges this promised leader, Samson. Before he was even born, he was ordained by God to help save the Israelites. Here's the problem. The problem is this. Of all the judges, Samson probably struggled the most. He was prob of all of the judges, he was probably the worst leader of them all. As a matter of fact... He might have struggled enough that he's actually the last judge ever mentioned in the Bible. It's almost as though he broke the system. This was, was how much he struggled in, in this role. But what was his, what was his challenge? Why, was he, why, why did he struggle in leadership? One word, frame, his frame. In your notes, my frame, it's, it's the lens that I see my whole world through. Your frame is something, it, it, it begins early on, but it continues to develop throughout the course of your life. And it's based on the things that you think about because where your mind goes, your eyes follow. Where your eyes go, your body follows. In the beginning of chapter 14, this is where we, we first get a glimpse at what Samson's frame might look like. There, verse one. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Remember, Philistines are the bad guys. 
Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Pay attention to that phrase, she is right in my eyes. That's a phrase that you're gonna see and hear throughout the book of Judges. Whenever you see that phrase, right in their eyes, the indication is what was right in their eyes was not right in the eyes of God. So in any case, Samson, he sees this woman in town and he says to his parents, go get her for me. And they say, her? She's, 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 she's a Philistine, Samson. You were sent to us to save us from the Philistines, not marry them. Are you sure? And he said, yes, I want her. Go get her for me. You get, you, you get a picture of, of Samson's frame right now. Whenever I, I read this passage, I get a... a a pop culture visual in my mind. This is the visual I get in my mind of Samson. Do we remember this character? Veruca Salt, you remember her line, her famous line? But daddy, I want to noopa loop and I want it now. That's her. Guess what? That's Samson also. <laughs> that's, that's the voice I read Samson at this part as he sees this woman. It's, it's, it's a, just, just imagine for a moment the comical a view of this mighty, strong, powerful warrior throwing a temper tantrum in front of his parents because he's got to have this Philistine woman. I want you to get that picture in your mind. It's, it's a big time framing issue for Samson. And this is where it begins. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for all of us as well. And your notes, number one, how I view others. This is one of Samson's biggest framing issues. See, he sees the woman in Timnah, as property. He doesn't see her as a person, not at all. She's nothing more to him than the object of his desire, and he's got to have her. But he doesn't even go through the trouble of getting her himself. He sends his parents like he was shopping online. He's like, I want the Philistine woman, go get her for me. He sees the girl as property, and he sees his parents like they're his hired goons. Now, it, it would be easy for us to just say, you know, his view of women is not really out of the norm. That was kind of how a lot of people viewed women. Not true. It's just not true. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to show you a very specific example of a woman who wasn't viewed as property. Quite the opposite. She was viewed as a highly capable and an effective leader, able to lead lots of men in war. But the overarching issue for Samson is this, is that he sees people as nothing more than a matter of utility. Their, their value for Samson was connected to how well they could serve him. His parents could serve him by providing him with the object of his desire. The woman could serve him by satisfying his desire. Now, now we, can, we can read this passage and we can make all kind of, kinds of judgments and say, wow, he sounds like a horrible human being. He sounds like a narcissist. But I want us to, to hold off and, and throwing judgment towards Samson because I'm, I'm curious how many of us fall into this same trap and we don't even know it, that we see other people in terms of how we can benefit from them. We see other people as tools in the construction of our own narratives, our own lives. If you wonder if this is a struggle for you, this is, this is what I want you to wrestle with. Think about a few questions and ask yourself this. In the past seven days, in the past week, since, since last Sunday, 
Have I spent any time serving somebody where I'm never going to get a return on that investment? Or have I spent any time serving anybody where they can never repay me? Or have I spent any time serving somebody that, in a way that they're never going to know that I served them, that nobody's ever going to know that I served them? And if the answer to all three of those questions is not at all, then I want to suggest you might have a framing issue. But what does that have to do with staying cool in the heated moments of life? Absolutely everything. You see, if I, if I view others only in terms of utility, what I'm doing, I, I only see them in this one snapshot, this two-dimensional person that I see right in front of me of how they can serve me in this moment or how I, I in, interact with them in the middle of a divisive issue. If that's all I see, then I'm robbing them of their humanity. And once I do that, it becomes a lot easier to lose my cool with this person in a heated moment. I remember a while back, I was, I was working on a project with somebody and I had, a, I had a deadline. I had a deadline and I hate, I hate being late. I'm a very punctual person. I don't like missing deadlines. Can't stand it. Well, this person is a part of this project. They needed to get something to me by a certain day, by Friday. Friday comes, guess what? They missed the deadline. What do I do? I lose my cool. Now, I didn't yell because that's not how I lose my cool. That's something you need to understand. There's, there's a lot of variations of losing your cool, and it's not always yelling. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's the silent treatment, or sometimes it's the tone or the types of words that you use or being passive aggressive. There's a lot of ways to lose your cool. In any case, I lose my cool. Guess what I find out right after I lose my cool? This, this is how the person responds. They said very genuinely, Chris, I'm so sorry. I, like, my, my wife, she's been sick at home and we're having to make some drastic changes at home. And it, it just, it completely distracted me. I completely forgot. There's no excuse. I'm so sorry. Can you guess how little I felt in that moment? Pretty little. Do you ever do that? Do you ever lose your cool with somebody? And then right after that, you learn just a little bit more of their story. And you think, man, I'm a jerk. Why did I get so impatient? Why did I not ask a few more questions about what was going on in that person's world? You see, my issue was in a moment of stress, I saw this person simply as a matter of utility of how they needed to do this specific thing. And I forgot that they were a living, breathing human. And I treated them like they were a machine. See how we handle ourselves in these high pressure situations. It starts with how we see each other. And if you struggle with this, and I want to suggest you probably do. I don't know that I've met anybody that doesn't struggle in this area. This is what I want to encourage you to do. Because you know, you know that, that, that moment when, when you're about to step over the line or you're about to jump off that cliff and allow your emotions to just take over. You know when it's going to happen right before you take that step. Whether it's a heated moment or a divisive situation, I want to encourage you to do this. Find a way at that moment, you hit pause on that conversation and you back up. Long enough that you can take, for, take just a moment and consider the person who you're about to lose your cool with. And you consider that this two-dimensional version of them that you see in front of you that 
There's more to them than this moment. There's more to them than this argument. There's more to them than whatever their respective stance is on whatever issue that we happen to be arguing about. You consider the possibility that they had a life before they stepped into your periphery. And then when they step out of your periphery, guess what? They continue to exist. They have relationships. They have people that love them, people that they love, that their life is much bigger than this one two-dimensional moment that you find yourself engaged with them in. And then you consider the possibility that maybe, just maybe, they are carrying something that you don't know about, that you don't need to know about. It's none of your business anyway, that there's more to this person than this moment. You remind yourself of their humanity and then you press play. You get back into that conversation and you see how that interaction changes when you remind yourself of the humanity of the other person. See, Samson, his framing issue is that he sees people as, as nothing more than a cog in the wheel of his life. And because of that, it creates another framing issue for him. And it does the same thing for us in your notes. Number two, how I view myself. The, the purpose of the judges, like Samson, it was to deliver the Israelites from oppression. But as you dig into his narrative, and we're only hitting the high points here, I would encourage you at some point, go back and read Judges 13 through 16 if you want to get the full dose of, of his narrative. But as you dig through his narrative, what you're going to find is that serving people, it seemed to be the last thing on his mind. The only thing he seemed to concentrate on was how to satisfy his most immediate desire in the moment. So he tells his parents about the woman in Timnah that he wants. And so they travel to the town to go get her for him. Now, how do you suppose Samson got to this place of viewing himself above everybody else? This is what I think. I think it was his parents. I think that's where it began for him. You see, for Samson, he was a miracle birth. His birth was announced by the angels. And that only happens a couple of times in the Bible. Samson's one of them. There at uh, 13, chapter 13, verse 5, the angel appears to Samson's parents and says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So I'm guessing that from birth, all Samson heard were these stories from his parents about how great he was going to be how mighty, how strong, how powerful he was going to be. And my guess is maybe they skipped over the part about how sacrificing and serving were going to be a part of the journey. So by the time Samson comes of age, he's got this overhyped view of who he really is. Like as parents, as grandparents, it's, it's very important for us to do these things, to, to speak into the lives of our kids and, and paint these pictures for them about the great things that they can achieve, about the great people that they can become. We need to do that often, as often as we can, but it's very, very important that we clarify for them what it means to be great. Greatness is in serving. Greatness is in sacrificing. Greatness is in this thing called agape love, to will and work for the good for somebody else. The biblical model of greatness is serving. The greatest person to ever walk the face of the earth was a man named Jesus. And what did he spend his life doing? He spent it serving. So yes, tell your kids 
about the great things that they can accomplish. Just don't forget to, to clarify for them what it means to be great. Let, let Jesus define greatness for them, not the world. For Samson, he's got this overhyped view of himself, and it leads to some other issues as well. The verse that we just, I just read there in verse 5, it mentions the title Nazarite. Samson was called to be a Nazarite at birth. For now, all you need to know is that meant his life was set apart. It was consecrated for a specific purpose of service to God and to the Israelites. But along with that vow of a Nazarite, it meant three rules that he had to live by. One of them, we just read there, verse 5, no razor could cut his hair. And the previous verse in verse 4, we read about the other two there in verse 4. It says, therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. So these are the rules. He can't cut his hair. He can't drink wine. And he can't touch anything unclean, like including dead animals. So those are the rules, right? All right, so back to chapter 14 in verse 5. It says, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards at Timnah. Okay, one of the rules, he's not supposed to drink wine. Where does he go? He goes to a vineyard. Anybody see the problem there? Side note, some of the biggest issues that we find in life, some of our biggest uh, areas of brokenness could be reduced down to something as simple as a matter of geography. That if we had just been at the right place, we wouldn't have made the mistake. Or if we had just avoided the wrong place. In any case, Samson, not supposed to drink wine, goes to a vineyard. He would later throw a feast. They serve wine. Okay, so maybe he's broken one rule. Well, let's keep reading. After that, in verse 6, it talks about how a lion approaches him. And he's filled with the strength of God. And he makes quick work of the lion. He kills the lion with his bare hands. And then in verse 8... Samson returns to the lion says, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped out the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. Okay, the third rule. He's not supposed to touch anything unclean. Like, I don't know, maybe the carcass of a lion? So this, this man who's supposed to be a great leader and, and great servant. He's got three rules to live by. And in his first venture out into the world, he quickly breaks two of the three rules. You see, when we have this overhyped view of ourselves, we fall into this trap. And the trap is this, the rules don't apply to me. They don't. None of us would be so bold as to say something like that, but I wonder how it plays out in real life. And just be honest with yourself. You're at the grocery store and you're in a really long line and somebody cuts in that line, how does that make you feel? Doesn't it make your skin crawl? It makes my skin crawl. If somebody cuts in line, I'm just... Mm. Now, since I am a pastor and I'm supposed to be patient, I'm not going to say anything. Just let it happen. But I'm going to be gritting my teeth the whole time and I'm probably going to be staring at them. But is it a different feeling for you if maybe you're at the grocery store and there's a shorter line and there's somebody that might be in that line, but you're starting to negotiate in your own mind about how you can make it right that you can maybe cut in front of them? Do you know what I mean? Or how about this? Don't text and drive. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. It's a bad plan. It's, it's ignorant. It's arrogant. Don't do it. But if I do it, I mean, 
the message was really time sensitive. I had to send it right then. It just couldn't wait. Or I had to see what they said in response right away. Just it, How many of you just get infuriated when you see somebody texting and driving, yet you know you do it as well? You see, when we, we, we view ourselves in this way, you fall into this trap of the rules don't apply to me. We stop being a leader. We stop being a servant. Tell me if, if uh, anybody knows who this guy is. It's okay if you don't. It's, it's, this is going way back over 100 years ago. This shoeless Joe Jackson. Incredible athlete. He played over 100 years ago, yet he's still sitting number three all-time career batting average. Think about that. Babe Ruth modeled his swing after Shoeless Joe. That's how good he was. But if you talk to anybody who knows anything about Shoeless Joe, that's not the story they're going to tell you. The story they're going to tell you is about the Black Sox scandal of 1919, how he and seven other guys intentionally threw the World Series against the Reds. And they were kicked out of the league, given a lifetime ban from the Hall of Fame. But here's the deal. Those eight players, they thought they had a good reason for breaking the rule. They were, they were incredible players, but the league, they, the league wasn't paying them hardly anything. And so they thought, well, if, if Major League Baseball is not going to pay me what I deserve, one way or another, I want to get what's rightfully mine. Even if that means helping out the gambling community, even if that means breaking the one rule you're not supposed to break in baseball. They fell into this trap of thinking the rules didn't apply to them because they deserved more. This is a trap for so many of us that we, we find ourselves in these, in these similar situations where our character is called into question. You see, this is what it looks like to lose your cool in a high-pressure situation, to take, that, to take that line between right and wrong and just, just blur it just a little bit in some situations. So there's right and there's wrong. And then there's how I'm going to report my taxes this year. There's right and there's wrong. And then there's how I report my hours at work or how I handle my work responsibilities. There's right and there's wrong. And then there's the conversations that maybe I engage in sometimes or the way that I handle myself when, when nobody else is really around. You see, losing your cool is not just losing your patience in a disagreement. Losing your cool is losing your own sense of humanity, of humility of your understanding between right and wrong, losing your own sense of ethics and morality. For Samson, it was, a, it was a slippery slope for him. And it only goes downhill from there. It creates another framing issue for himself. When, when, when we have this inflated view of ourselves, we stop seeing ourselves as servants. It leads to this other framing issue in your notes. Number three, how I view God. And this could be the biggest framing issue for everybody. Because you see, it's, it's catalytic for everything else. How I view God is going to temper how I view myself. How I view God is going to temper how I view other people. It's such an important part of, of following Jesus. When, when, when people will come forward to publicly profess their faith in Jesus, we ask them this question. We say, do you publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Do you? And they say, yes. But I wonder how often we, we forget about half of that profession. Jesus is my Savior. 
And I love professing my faith and that reality every day. Jesus is my Savior. He saves me every day, every hour, every minute of every hour of every day. Jesus is my Savior. And when the storm comes, I'm going to cry out, Jesus, save me. Save me from the storm. What about the other half of that profession? Jesus is my Lord. Sometimes I'm not crying out, save me. Sometimes I'm crying out, Jesus, lead me. Lead me in this storm. Lead me through this storm. Sometimes that means before the storm even comes, in moments of peace, in moments of tranquility, I'm calling out, Jesus, you are my Lord. Where are you leading me today? Lead me today. And maybe, just maybe, I won't walk myself into some of the storms that I find myself in. Maybe I'm not needing you to save me from brokenness because I was following your lead to begin with. Simple question for reflection. Is, Is Jesus your parachute? This is what I mean by that. When you find yourself falling and life is out of control, you pull on that Jesus cord. And Jesus comes out of the backpack and he creates this big parachute for you and he helps you safely land to the ground. And then once you're safe on the ground, you take Jesus and you fold him back up and you put him in your backpack and you keep him back there. And he stays there until you find yourself falling again and then you pull on the cord again. Is he your parachute? Or is he like the beating of your heart? The thing you can't do anything without. The thing that sustains your whole body to keep it moving forward. The thing that that keeps your mind sharp to know where to go. Is Jesus your parachute or is he the beating of your heart? You see, for Samson, I would argue, this is where his framing issue actually began. How he viewed God. In chapter 15, Samson's delivered over the Philistines. They time up. But then God fills Samson with the strength to break the ropes and he grabs the jawbone of a donkey and he uses it as a weapon to defeat a thousand Philistines. It's a pretty incredible scene. But how does Samson respond in this moment after God saves him in this way? Does Samson say thank you? No. Here's how he responds in verse 18. It says, and Samson was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? You hear that? Do you hear that tone? Samson's getting snarky. He's getting demanding even with God. He's viewing God as though God is his personal water boy. That's a big time framing issue here. And sadly, this isn't the last time we see this. In chapter 16, at the end of Samson's journey, this is is after his infamous relationship with Delilah, another Philistine woman, after she betrays him three times, yet he still inexplicably tells her the secret to his strength in his hair. And predictably, she cuts his hair, has the Philistines come in, they arrest him, they carry him off in shackles and chains, they gouge out his eyes. And here he is at 16, completely humiliated, brought down to the lowest of low. This is the lowest point for Samson's life. And in this moment, he calls out to God again. But does he, does he call out to say, I'm sorry? Does he call out and ask for forgiveness? No, this is, this is what Samson says. And Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh God, please remember me and please strengthen me. 
Only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. It's the end of his journey. This supposed great leader and, and promised servant at his lowest low point, he's still really just thinking about himself. He calls out to God for his strength to return. Why? So that he can seek out his own revenge. That's what he still cares about. And the only hint that we have of, of any character growth in Samson is this. At least at this point, he's able to recognize who the source of his strength is. It was God and not himself. And tragically, this is where Samson's story ends as he destroys the palace where he was imprisoned, taking his own life in the process. Throughout his story, his biggest issue was how he viewed God. God was his supernatural divine parachute that Samson could pull on when he needed. See, this, this idea of, of staying cool under pressure, this is where it begins. How I view God, if throughout the course of today, within you, you're, you're feeling any sort of, yeah, yeah, that's me. I struggle there. This is a struggle for me. I want to suggest this is where it begins, how you view God. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want to give you, the, uh, this is my personal life hack for you. I want to give you a prayer. I want to give you a psalm to use. It's something that I use, and I use this psalm when I know I'm about to walk into a conversation that has the potential of getting heated. I want to take a moment before I ever walk into that room, and I want to sit with this psalm. If I'm in a room where the emotions are starting to get high, I've got my own little journal sitting in front of me. And in the middle of that, that conversation, I'll start writing out that psalm just to remind me of how I need to be centered. You see, the problem with us losing our cool is this. Our starting point is the chaos of the world, and we allow that to internalize within. Instead of starting with the within, and allowing that experience with God to impact how we respond to the division of the world. Church, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Don't let the world come into your house and go to your thermostat and start heating up the place. Don't let them touch your thermostat. Only God gets to touch the thermostat within you. That's it. And here's how you do it. Not just in the morning time, but throughout the day, throughout the course of the day, you, you carry this psalm with you, you carry this image with you to keep yourself centered so that when chaos ensues around you, what's happening here is okay. So for the next four weeks, I want to challenge all of you to memorize this three-verse passage. If you don't already do this, go to the app, go to the Life Steps. And we're going to be using that during the season to help you memorize this passage. And this becomes your starting point of the day and you carry it with you through the day. So I want to take you through a time of prayer, but I would invite you, go ahead, you can keep your eyes open because I want you to capture the image of what the psalmist is praying through, what he's talking about. And when chaos ensues in your world, this is where you go. Let's pray. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. 
Blessed is the one who doesn't stand in the way that sinners take because they know, they know where that path is going to take them. They've been down that path before. They know. And so they don't stand there. Blessed is the one who doesn't sit in the company of mockers, of scoffers. They don't sit in the company of people that will fuel the division in their lives. Instead, their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They place themselves at the source of life so that when life squeezes them, ugliness is not the thing that comes out, but the Spirit of God, the fruits of the Spirit come out. And because they planted themselves at the stream of life, their fruit develops in season. Their leaf never withers. Their compassion, their strength, their, their courage, their willingness to listen, their willingness to understand in the presence of the person who's saying things that they find offensive, even in that moment, their leaf does not wither. And because they do this, because they place themselves at the source of life in all that they do, they prosper. When this is at the core of who I am, when this is my starting point, it gets really hard to lose my cool with somebody else because this is the thing feeding my spirit. Let it be yours as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lean into God and stay cool. Have a good day.